You're listening to Monday Morning Live, part of the We Love Where You Live podcast series brought to you by the Michigan Municipal League. Okay, well, welcome to another edition of Monday Morning Live, the podcast and uh, webinar series. Um, I am Matt Bach, uh, Assistant Director of Strategic Communications for the Michigan Municipal League. Um, and we, you've stumbled on our show. We're going to talk about legislative issues and things happening in the state, national, or federal legislatures, uh, in Congress. Um, but we're going to kick things off today with a special guest, uh, Kelly Warren uh, from the Michigan Municipal League. She's uh, uh, involved with our membership program, um, but she's kind of been on—I wouldn't call it special assignment, but she kind of has been on a special assignment for the past year working on our 2020 uh, census information, um, trying to get our communities uh, accurately counted. Uh, so we decided to have Kelly come on and talk about the, her work with the census. And uh, um, it was kind of a, a roller coaster of a year, not what she had anticipated. So Kelly, welcome to the program. And tell us a little bit about your role with the league and, and the census. Thank you, Matt. So as you mentioned, I am membership director, director of membership and affiliate engagement. And this year, I've spent most of my time working on the census. So I just want to go back a little bit to share how the league got involved with working on the census. Um, in 2017, we were approached by the Michigan Nonprofit Association and the state demographer to work on a project called LUCA, which is Local Units Canvassing for Addresses. And that gave local units of government the opportunity to verify addresses that the Census Bureau would be using for the count. Um, at that time, we created a resource page on our website and began sharing information with our members and sharing the fact that there was over $675 billion at stake and that uh, Michigan stood to lose $3,000 per person per year for people that weren't counted. Uh, fast forward, in the spring of 2019, I was appointed by Governor Whitmer to serve on the complete the State Complete Count Committee. Um, we meet quarterly, and actually my term will be up next month, uh, but we had a goal of increasing awareness about the census and motivating Michigan residents to respond. Right. And then later that year, we got a grant from the Michigan Municipal League Foundation um, well, the Michigan Municipal League Foundation received a grant from the state to work with the state complete count committee um, to increase the partici participation rate for the census. So, right. So you became a, a kind of a census uh, conduit between us and the state, and then you became yes. a grant facilitator and manager for this this program. Yes. Um, of course, originally the census deadline was supposed to be, I think, in June sometime, but then yep. COVID hit, and what happened? So initially it was July 31st, and then it was extended when COVID hit, extended by just a couple of weeks, uh, because of course we thought that maybe that's all we needed. And then it was extended a little further. Then it went to October 31st, and we were like, well, this is good because we can make some things happen. You know, canvassers can get out, the Census Bureau can provide training for folks. Um, then we were told, nope, it has to stop September 30th. <laughs> In September, a judge ruled that it could be extended to October 31st. And finally, on October 13th, the Supreme Court said, no, it needs to stop before then. And so we stopped on October 15th. So two days. Right. So what kind of impact did that or did coronavirus in general have on our numbers? And, you know, basically my question is, you know, how did it go? Did we get close to goals or, or what happened with, with the actual count? Yes, yeah, so the state complete count committee, we had a very ambitious goal of 82% self response rate, which means people respond on their own without the Census Bureau having to contact them. 
we knew it was ambitious going into it. And that's without knowing that there would be a pandemic, of course. Our 2010 response rate was 67.7%. And we did come in at 71.3%, um, which is really good. We actually ranked eighth in the nation and we were the first state to surpass our 2010 response rate. Oh, wow, that's good. So, uh, so that response, uh, self-response rate just means that we didn't have to badger people to, to put in there, correct? correct. So, they so how, did the, uh, how did then the outreach part go uh, as far as, you know, the, the kind of the hard to count communities and there's a number in our state that have, you know, undercounted populations. How did that part of it go? You know, so the Census Bureau says that 99.9% .9 of households have been accounted for. Um, we did see some lower numbers. I'm actually going to pull up some stats here because yeah. uh, we got lower numbers in university towns, which we kind of expected, but especially with COVID, you know, students yeah. were not where they typically would be counted. And we got lower numbers in some of the rural areas and some of the urban communities. Okay. So that kind of, that kind of uh, obviously put a damper on, on the thing. So what do you think it might, uh, you're looking up stats, what do you think it might mean for our communities as far as the money, money they get and are eligible for from the federal government? Do we have any idea what that could look like? Yeah, we're not sure yet. Uh, final numbers are due from the Census Bureau to the president by December 31st. That's a statutory deadline. Okay. Um, and then numbers are due to the state um, in April, April 1. Now, I saw a lot of creative things out there that our communities were doing, and I know with COVID that kind of, but I know uh, there was ice cream socials. I was at the city of Burton the other day, and they had like little Frisbees that said census, you know, your vote, your census counts. It seems like our communities really did kind of got creative out there with a lot of the work they had to do, particularly with the pandemic. They had to. Yeah, I know Saginaw also had ice cream socials like three Fridays in a row. Of course, they practiced CDC guidelines. They were social distance, but they had people there from the Census Bureau um, with tablets taking the information or letting people, you know, complete the questionnaire at that time. Okay. We have communities who brought in food trucks um, oh, wow. to help out local businesses, you know, when they were shut, their restaurants might have been shut down. Yeah. And also had people responding to the census there. Okay. So kind of multi-purpose, like let's help the local business while also trying to get the count happening. Absolutely. Then do you have some stats that you wanted to share? Well, I do want to, actually, I want to shout out our top 10 communities. I'm going to read through them real quick, but I think they deserve because these are the communities with the highest self-response rates in Michigan. Okay. Bear with me. And I think a couple of those rank nationally too, like maybe top 10. Absolutely. So Huntington Woods had a 93.6% response rate. They were number one in Michigan, fifth in the nation. Wow. There's 19,000 cities in the incorporated cities in the nation. They were fifth. Um, Pleasant Ridge had a 91.3% response rate, second in Michigan, 23rd in the nation. So I won't read the rest of their stats, but I will at least name the rest of the community. Sure. Yeah. East Grand Rapids, Lathrop Village, Beverly Hills, Berkeley, Gross Point Woods, Gross Point Farms, Clawson, and Goodrich. Oh, Goodrich is right by me. Okay. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so it does know. seem, and I guess that's probably, it does seem something that for whatever reason, the more affluent communities are the ones that have the more, uh, so higher self-response rate. Is that is that probably a trend nationally that that happens? That's definitely a trend. Um, yes. So and why do you think that is that the, the, the poor communities don't seem to 
to respect have the self-response rate that the other ones do there's several reasons there's a, a lack of trust in in government overall um just a, a lack of trust period you know not yeah. just government um right. Um, children under five are included in that. It, it, there's just a ton of different reasons why yeah. those groups don't respond. And we were trying to tackle those issues. Yeah. Um, and we had some success, but we do see that, you know, those num- those communities did come in with lower numbers. Right. And I think that was, you mentioned the grant earlier, and I think that was part of the reason for that is to try to help with those, some of those communities get those hard areas. Mm-hmm. All right. So overall, what's your general feeling is how it all went, because it was just a crazy, crazy year for you. It was. Um, overall, actually, I'm proud of everything that we did. We got to see the numbers move in a lot of our communities. I'm actually, I have a couple more stats I wanted to share. Um, just highlights or reasons to celebrate, I like to call it. <laughs> right. That's always good. It's hard to find those sometimes during the <laughs> pandemic, things to celebrate. So Michigan ranked third in improvement from the 2010 census. Oh, okay. Over 65% of our Michigan census tracts had self-responded at a higher rate than 2010. Of the grant community self-responded at a higher rate than 2010. Okay. And our state demographers said we had the best census performance since 1990, which is amazing. Wow, really? Wow, that's that is good. So when do you think, uh, I know as a former journalist, census uh, data was a really big deal for, for reporters to find out things. There's a lot of different information that comes out. When do you start, when do you think we'll start seeing what the actual results were? Will it be next year? Or will it not be till the year after that or even further out? Yeah, we should have some next year. Um, but of course, with all the moving deadlines, even that statutory deadline, the Census Bureau said they're aiming to meet. Um, okay. So hopefully next year we'll start to get numbers. But of course, as we learn, as we get different numbers from the Census Bureau, we'll share that information with our members. All right, good. Um, I should mention that if you did have any questions for Kelly about the census and how it went, you can post those in the chat. Um, We are going to move over to the Lansing team. So if you have any questions for them as well, post that in the chat as well. But uh, Kelly, anything you wanted to add before we uh, switch gears here? I just want to thank everyone that was involved from staff to our members um, working with the state complete um, the state CCC everyone that was involved anyone who did phone banking encouraged others to respond to the census held events etc thank you all because we could not have done it without you yes for sure well thank you Kelly thank you for all your work too like I said if you want to you can uh, hang out and if we have any questions come in oh looks like we did get one here um, can you provide a site where we can look at self-response rates for individual cities? You have a, there is a link, right? You can post that in the chat. Yep, I'll post the link. All right. And then one person asked, did we see a population increase? <laughs> and that's, probably one of the, that's one of the main <laughs> questions we'll, they'll probably find out next year, I would guess. Exactly. Like I said, that's, that's important to our members because if their numbers absolutely. population went up, then they could get more, more revenue. Correct. Absolutely. So we don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> All so right. we'll share that with everyone great all right thank you kelly thank you very much thank you. so um let's shift it over to the uh lansing team got a lot going on of course the election is taking up all the headlines but a lot of things going on behind the scenes uh we'll kick it off with um uh, uh chris and, and team uh what's happening right now uh i know we had the supreme court state supreme court ruling on the executive orders for the governor 
uh, declaring those invalid. And now the health department has issued some, but we had some, some other work that we had to do. So Chris, I'll just kind of turn it over to you and, and kind of have us catch us up since our last conversation on this topic. Sure, thanks, Matt. So, and thanks everyone for joining today. We're, uh, you know, we're in a little bit of a lull period here, which is uh, kind of nice. We're, um, Senate was in last week for one day, uh, get some, some things done. They moved uh, uh, some legislation related to electronic notaries. Again, some of the stuff that came out of what we have to codify following the, the Supreme Court decision on the governor's powers, uh, much like the OMA bill Jen will talk about later. So we, you know, dealt with, uh, you know, that one session day, luckily, again, they kind of stayed focused. They're off now until the election. And so they'll come back. Uh, I believe they've got four days scheduled. They'll be in uh, Wednesday and Thursday after the election. And then the following week, uh, Tuesday, Thursday, I think Veterans Day is in the middle. So, uh, so they'll have four days and then they'll break again for uh, the hunting Thanksgiving break and come back uh, full force on December 1st and plow through whatever agenda they've got at that time. Uh, I know John will talk a little bit about, you know, the governor's got a priority out, pretty big priority out there in terms of her water infrastructure package she announced. Um, you know, we'll see what other executive order codifications uh, need to be done. And um, beyond that, we're all, I think the whole, all of Lansing is trying to figure out what are the other priorities that will happen and, you know, kind of what will, what will follow on as a result uh, from the results of the election. You know, we have all 110 members of the House up. No members in the Michigan Senate are up. That uh, we then have our congressional delegation up. As, in addition to that uh, race, everybody keeps talking about in D.C. with the president. I don't know what that's about, but um, you know we'll see. You know the potential. There's a big push. The Democrats are making a big push in Michigan to take over power in the House. Uh, you know that's a you know three votes is a shared power scenario. So it's a very you know I think there's a lot of focus. You're seeing a lot of conversations about different areas of the state and where the parties are, are making their pushes. And, and so there's a lot up in the air, a lot riding on, on uh, what's gonna happen in the state house at that point. Yeah, is that, and of course, it's just the state house that's up. There's no Senate races that are up, right? So if we see any change, it would only be in the house? Correct, you do have, uh, we do have one Senator running for, two senators running for, that's right, uh, running for countywide seats. So we have the potential for some special elections next year. Uh, from those seats, so but nothing in November here. Okay, so um, if that happens, if there is a flip, do you, does that typically translate to an even more active lame duck? And then if there wasn't a, a change in uh, control, well, I think you've got to look back and and think about what's going on with the the split the split power. Uh, you know, different than uh, Governor Snyder's last year. You know, last time we were talking lame duck with everyone. Um, Jen and John and I uh, had toothpicks holding our eyelids open, and <laughs> we were, yeah, it was a it was a mad dash uh, uh, sprint uh, through through that lame duck, four hundred plus bills. Right. Time around, I mean, it really is an open question. Uh, we had one one individual we t met with last week uh, on staff said, you know, this can end up being a dud. Uh, you know, we've got the governor certainly is in a position, depending on what happens, to stop any craziness from taking place. So I think you will certainly have to see uh, policy issues moving that have bipartisan support in order to get the governor to agree to them. Um, but you know, as we find in lame duck, deals are cut. 
Uh, and yeah. There's lots of deals that will be cut on different things. And so we're trying to be as active as possible on a broad range of topics that are important to our members. Well, one of the things that did have bipartisan support was what Jen was working on, the, the changes to the Open Meetings Act to allow our communities to meet uh, virtually uh, uh, during this uh, pandemic. Uh, and Jen, I know we already have at least one follow-up question on that um, from a member, and that had to do with, um, uh, you know, I'll read, just read the question. OMA questions, let's see. Um, the OMA law that just passed, um, it allows those with disabilities and veterans to attend meetings through the internet. Is a copy of it available? That was the question, but I think we have a kind of a different answer there. So go ahead. Yeah, I think I think the person that asked the question maybe was real, um, was talking about the new definition and insertion of medical condition um, and military duty. So we'll, I'll post here um, a link to the bill um, where the per hopefully the person's on, um, they can access the, the signed PA. Um, but since we brought that up, I know we had our special kind of um, iteration of this last Monday when we weren't scheduled to specifically to yeah. talk about OMA. Lots of questions about uh, procedures and where we're going to do um, best practices around procedures. Um, we did ask if folks were doing those um, and they were willing to share to please send them to us so we could share them with members who had questions and wanted to look at examples. We haven't received any as of yet. Um, okay. So if anyone out there is willing to share your procedures. Um, I also know there was a lot of um, trying to think of the right word, people like, oh no, we gotta establish these procedures. Yes. Um, many communities most likely already had some sort of procedure in place because that was existing language that you had to have some kind of procedure in place if you had remote participation by somebody in the military or if somebody was just in remote in for discussion and not um, voting. Um, so I think many communities already have uh, at least a start on these procedures and, um, and it's making sure that they add the new information in 3A that's required now and addressing kind of the two-way communication and those things. Um, so if, if anybody out there is willing to email us um, their procedures, we're happy to get those up and share them with, um, with other members so they can look at them. Yes, and, and as you said, we did last Monday have a special Monday Morning Live. We had Senator Tice on the call with us, and she was the sponsor of the bill, so it was really nice having her on, and, and she talked about that was an important part for her, that they had some kind of policy or procedure in place that laid out, you know, what the rules they'll follow as far as, you know, having virtual meetings, so you need to have those in place um, to have your virtual meetings, so um, yep. A lot of our members were had a lot of questions about those. What do they look like? So we're trying to give good examples and we don't have any yet. So if you guys have one that you've already formed, um, feel free to uh, email it to me or Jen and we can post our emails. Betsy, you can post our emails in the chat and they can send those to us. Go ahead, I'd also Jen. just mention, Matt, that you know we're already looking at um, possible tweaks, extending that you know, year-end deadline. Um, those are ongoing conversations right now that we're hoping to uh, at least clean up or address some of those things here in, in Lane Duck going forward. Okay. So All hopefully right. more to come on this. Yeah. One other, um, uh, go ahead, Chris. That's an important point that Jen brought up there. And when we get through this Lame Duck period, uh, it will likely end right before Christmas, so the 19th, 20th, somewhere in there of December. Well, the, the legislation currently that uh, passed in, in Senate Bill 1108 has a December 31st sunset for kind of the blanket allowance. Well, the legislature doesn't even return until you know the first 
the first full week in January. Uh, so, and that's just to form a new legislature. That's their first official day. They're not actually going to have committees in place and some of their structures set up until sometime in February. So, you know, any opportunity to move legislation on an extension really has to happen in that lame duck period. Otherwise, we're waiting until sometime February, March, uh, before we're able to get into, into some of those. So, again, it's going to be important, uh, Jen's work and, and some of the folks she's working with, Chris Johnson from our team, can be really important during this lame duck period to get that get that extended. Okay, and now Jen, we did get a couple of questions came in on the OMA uh, bills. Uh, Nate asks or says, and then asks, um, hybrid meetings are not the most practical and will be challenging for and I just just a challenge for us and likely others. They bought us a couple months, but with cases rising, COVID cases rising. Uh, it does not go far enough. I hope they give us more time. Is that something that they're aware of, Jen? Or Definitely. And that was part of our conversations, um, you know, when we were working on this legislation just here two weeks ago, I think now, um, is, you know, talking about the deadline. They did um, both sides of the aisle. You know, there was pushback on both sides, but there was the acknowledgement that it it probably most likely needs to be pushed out, but they were not comfortable just putting, you know, a full another year in. So I think this is something where um, there was acknowledgement that we most likely do need to do something to extend it. And those conversations are already happening. And, and you know, we are very hopeful that something is going to um, is going to be extended. I think we'll see it more likely extended for shorter periods of time and extended a number of times versus, you know, getting a blanket another year or or longer. So. Okay. All right. Um, uh, Paul asks, do the new policies regarding virtual meetings need to be in place now or by January 1st, 2021? If you are meeting virtually or remotely, you, yes, you already need to have procedures. You need to have those procedures because they're dictating what you're doing at those virtual meetings. So you need yep. to get those in place as soon as possible or look at the existing procedures you have and amend them to uh, make sure they're incorporating the things in the new act. Okay. Um, now it looks like we've got a question or maybe it's a comment about the census. Um, uh, let's say by the end of the year, the Census Bureau is supposed to supply state by state population totals, uh, reapportioning congressional seats. And by April 1st, 2021, the Census Bureau is supposed to supply population community. Um, so it looks like it's just a comment uh, to kind of informing people what's going on with the census, kind of expanding on some of the stuff that Kelly talked about. Uh, so, Chris, uh, we talked about the uh, lame duck uh, schedule. Um, we did get a question uh, before this start about the Treasury information. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, for those of you who received uh, the, I'll call it uh, the revenue sharing swap out money. So in August, instead of your revenue sharing payment in August, you received the uh, there's a long acronym from the Treasury that no one will remember, DLRGG or something like that. Anyway, uh, if you received those funds in August as replacement funds for your statutory revenue sharing, there's a, uh, a re reporting requirement related to that uh, that Treasury has out there. And they had a webinar last week for something called OnQ, uh, and there was a uh, requirement that uh, the uh, chief administrative officer for the local unit of government had to certify that reporting. Uh, in the webinar, Treasury discussed, and we can post a, a link to the webinar. I think we've got it on our site somewhere, Matt, right? Um, the, there was an acknowledgement that the 
the CAO could designate someone from the community to fill out that recording. That is, uh, that is allowed, but you have to, there's a step in, in between. The chief administrative officer has to email in to Treasury that they are designating someone and get a response from Treasury that acknowledges they're in receipt and then whoever's been designated will get a specific login allowance. Otherwise, if someone other than the CAO attempts to file the report, it will be rejected. So that, again, you, you can designate someone, but that, uh, that person has to be designated by the chief administrative officer ahead of time, email that into treasury. I can put the email in the chat box here uh, and then treasury will respond, let you know that they have accepted that designee, that the designee can file the report at that time. Uh, and those reports are due on Wednesday. So that's kind of a, a big thing going on here this week uh, for communities as they deal with those dollars and the reporting related to those dollars. One other thing I wanna mention, just as we talk about those revenue sharing dollars, Treasury has been communicating with, uh, with cities that have not filed their certification that they intend to use those dollars. I know we have some communities that are trying to figure out, uh, do they have enough eligible expenses to use those dollars or not? Uh, and so do I even need to fill out this certification? Treasury's email this last week to those communities that haven't done their certification was, you either, either need to fill out the certification or return the money. Um, I have been counseling our members as I talk with them and, and talking with some of the other groups like the government finance officers and the municipal treasurers groups to make sure, even if right now you're not sure if you have enough eligible expenses, certify. Because if you return the money, there's no hope of getting it back. Uh, you right now don't have to spend it if you certify yet. You have until the end of the year. Uh, and there still is, we're still working, John and Jen and I are working very hard with our congressional delegation uh, on a, you know, additional stimulus conversations. And even if additional stimulus dollars aren't provided, there is still the option that we could get additional revenue backfill flexibility. And th those dollars that you've been allocated could be used for revenue backfill. So again, I would encourage members Send in that certification. Even if you've missed the deadline, they will still accept the certification. Send it in, hold those dollars, and see if we get that flexibility or additional money coming in so that you'll have an ability to spend it and actually recoup your loss from the August revenue sharing cut. Thanks, Chris. And it uh, looks like there's one related question to that. I think it's related to you. What if we already filed under the COA's email, but with the designee's name information, will we need to refile? Yes, you need to ensure that the email from the chief administrative officer goes into treasury uh, at, uh, at, and again, I'll put the email in, uh, I think it's treasury-cares-reporting at michigan.gov. Uh, so you'll, or T-R-E-A-S. <laughs> that's it. that's an easy email. <laughs> right. We'll put the right. link in there for you. Go ahead, Chris. Treasury does nothing simple for us. <laughs> but you do have to, you have to send in from the CIO who you want your designee to be, and Treasury has to acknowledge that, and because they're, they're going through and, and compiling a list. Then once they do that, then the designee will have their own login to submit the reporting. So uh, that's my understanding. That's what I just got from them today. Okay. I, I did want to bring in um, John real quick in the conversation. Of course, a lot of talk uh, uh, on the federal level about uh, the next uh, federal stimulus package. Uh, what's the latest on that? And then I'm going to go follow back up with some of the state issues that John, Chris, and Jen are working on. 
sure, I'd be happy to expand on that. Um, next topic, please. Uh, that's uh, that's where I think we're we're at right now. I mean, it's it's <laughs> been interesting, right, uh, to say the least. Um, you know, we've expressed some optimism uh, a couple of different times about the ability to maybe get this done, and I think there's still some optimism. But you know, the things that that continue to get in the way are obviously the election um, and some of the changing political winds from day to day, week to week, even sometimes hour to hour, and. I think what we can say uh, definitively, and Chris had mentioned some of the efforts that we've been working on with NLC, is that we know that the conversation is happening in a very real fashion. So again, we always talk about setting aside what we hear in the headlines and, and seeing the news and stuff like that. Um, but we do know behind the scenes that there are very real conversations continuing to take place. You know, whether something breaks or not before the election, uh, I'm, I'm done making predictions on this one, I think. Um, you know, we look at just what's going to happen likely in the Senate today with the confirmation of, uh, of a new Supreme Court justice. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that's an additional layer of, of you know, issues that, that need to be dealt with. But, you know, at the end of the day, I know we continue to share information with the National League of Cities, who is then sharing that information uh, with Speaker Pelosi and, and her office and and her staff. Um, and so that's why we continue to ask for it. And I think we're having a real impact there to show that when we say communities are uh, in, a, in a situation where additional revenue is gonna be needed to help them not just maybe immediately or in the near term, but really as we think about how the economy at the local level works, that long-term aspect is gonna be critical for us to continue our advocacy and continue to push forward on additional funding for direct aid to, to cities and villages of all sizes. Um, so trust me, uh, we will uh, break the news as soon as we have it. But uh, right now it's uh, sit, wait, continue to do our due diligence, share as much information as we can and, and press on those that we need to press on to make sure that, that this does get across the finish line at some point. Right, and I know our partners at the National League of Cities have been very involved in this. We get regular updates from them. I see tweets and, and things from them all the time. So I know they're working very hard on uh, communities, not just in Michigan, but across the country to try to get that done. So uh, another question, and this might, I think this one's for Chris, um, the Treasury. Is anyone having trouble logging into the Treasury website for OnCue? Um, I don't know if we heard, had any issues or questions on, on the technical side of, uh, you know, getting that information to them. Well, I think, again, that, that could be related to ensuring that the designee is specifically on file with Treasury. Um, you know, again, it, you know, make sure you email, send an email into that uh, email I put in, that rather long email I put into the chat box. Um, but you know, send that in if you need help, need direct assistance. You know, we can assist with connecting with the folks uh, in Treasury's office. Um, but again, they do have to have the designee identified on file and then they will respond to that designee with login credentials. So that's the, the process I've been told about this morning. Okay, uh, let's just back to state issues. I know, you know, with the, uh, the Supreme Court evaluating the governor's executive orders, the health department did step up and, and, and do some of those, but some they didn't really have the authority to. So we're working on a number of different bills. I was hoping you guys could kind of talk about those. I know uh, John, there's a, the water shutoff is, is one of the issues. Um, that our members are dealing with. So tell a little bit about what that um, executive order was and where things stand are now on that water shutoff issue. 
Yeah, thanks, Matt. So the the governor um, early in the pandemic had issued an executive order that uh, put a moratorium on all water water shutoffs, and then also required reconnection for those that had been shut off. Uh, that executive order was reissued, uh, and I believe that that second executive order went through the duration of the emergency. So, as we saw the executive orders um, be struck down and no longer be in effect, therefore communities, uh, in a general sense, could go back to doing what they were doing pre-pandemic. So, that includes turning people's water off for the issue of of non-payment. Now, I think when we look at what the general guidance is uh, during this pandemic and what people have done. You know, shutting off water isn't maybe the, the the first choice that we have here based on some of those recommendations, but that still is the community's choice uh, right now. So we know that there are issues out there with ensuring that we have to keep the water on and the system intact. So payment of bills becomes critically important at that point from a revenue standpoint. Uh, but there is a piece of legislation that is currently out there or at least being discussed right now. And Kristen mentioned uh, they're going to be back for a, a few days right after the election. And I would not be surprised uh, if there is a piece of legislation that comes up to talk about water shutoffs. Uh, every indication that we're getting right now is that it is likely to pass. Uh, and if it were to pass, uh, the most likely uh, scenario would be to extend a water shutoff deadline until the end of the year. Uh, and we've had some conversations about this uh, that that would be relatively consistent with some of the thought processes of the executive order that had previously passed, also with some of the funding that has come down uh, from the state in order to help people uh, with their arrearages. I think as we start to get beyond the first of the year though, we have to have a slightly different conversation about what that looks like for how long. And then when we think about uh, means testing or people's actual ability to pay and how we, we determine that from a community by community standpoint so that if water is not going to be shut off or if there is a, a statute in place, that it is very targeted and very direct. So our communities have the best ability possible to plan for the future, uh, knowing that this directly impacts the revenue sources that are available to them at the local level to maintain their infrastructure. Okay. And I have seen a couple articles where communities, knowing that they don't have to or they could shut off water, but they, they, at least the article I saw, they opted to keep going ahead and not shutting off the water, understanding that people are, are you know, going through some financial hard times right now. Um, but they, they were clear to point out that this isn't water payment forgiveness. You still have to pay it. It just, you don't have to pay it right now, but at some point you still are going to have to pay. And a lot of the communities have waived like late fees and things like that to try to be uh, sympathetic and try to help out our, our, the residents. Have you heard about that kind of thing? Are a lot of communities kind of stepping up anyways? Yeah, that, that's, that, that's pretty typical. Um, but again, you know, it, it's hard for us to say there's a, a, a specific way in which to do it, right? I mean, our members will have to evaluate each of those situations on their own you know, depending on the numbers. But I do think, Matt, you raised a, a really critical point, both in the executive order and when we discuss future legislation. This is not going to eliminate uh, the requirement for people to pay for water, right? Uh, it just says that the water uh, service needs to be provided um, and that they cannot shut them off. But in that case, if there is non-payment, that bill can still accrue. There's nothing in there that says penalty and interest um, at least when we think about for, for a, a next piece of legislation, uh, couldn't be incurred. And that is one of the things that is being discussed 
but in no way does this absolve anybody of paying for that service in, in, the, in the long term. Okay, and I just see one of our commenters, or one of the audience members said that their, their community decided to not do any shutoffs at least until April. So looks like they're stepping up in, in a bunch of different ways like that. Um, what other issues are out there? I understand um, I have my notes here from our conversation, uh, border review extension, uh, health related and education related. Uh, what's going on with those topics? I think you know we we certainly expect the administration and, and leadership are talking about some you know issues that will need to be codified out of those executive orders. Uh, so, you know some of them obviously not related to local governments when, when you're talking about you know some of the K-12 issues they might have to deal with. But things that I know we're hearing about if it, you know there was an executive order extension of the March boards of review that those were able to be brought up in July. Uh, there were questions about valuation changes that were made at that July board of review and whether those would still be valid or not. Um, so that's something I know the administration and treasury are talking about. Uh, there's been some conversations about emergency workers comp rules and what's going on with that. We've seen a number of different pieces of legislation, both chambers turned in that would do different things. The league obviously uh, has an interest in, in workers comp from our self-insurance pool standpoint. So we're watching and tracking that very closely to see what those next steps are. Uh, the e-notarization package that I mentioned that was moving, you know, that's something that, uh, again, I think as they're moving through everything and, and finding, I mean, John, how many executive orders did we end up with in the end? Almost 200, 200 and... Yeah, um, more, than, more than I could memorize, uh, <laughs> I can tell you that much. So, okay. you know, there's, I think they're still kind of pouring through each of those EOs and, and figuring out what what is in there that we need to to deal with in statute uh, similar to to what we did with OMA. Okay and I know a couple issues Jen that you're working on are still uh, very active and that one of those is the gravel mining uh, bill issue and then also short-term rental which is uh, you've talked a lot about on this show but I know there's um, always more to say so go ahead on those. Right. Uh, well we just don't want folks to lose you know sight of right now we're hearing if there's enough support that Senate Bill 431 which is the gravel mining preemption um, will be up for a vote on the Senate floor the first during those first two weeks of November when they come back. And so we need folks still engaging their senators talking about this bill and really driving home three points that, you know, we could find a middle ground, we could negotiate. So far there's been no negotiation or middle ground um, offered or willingness from the industry when it comes to this. And being able to explain from the local context of why local government needs to be part of that decision-making ability when it comes to very serious consequence around um, these mining operations. Um, and for those of you who don't have a mining operation um, directly in your community, you may have one that is in the adjacent community. Uh, but this also sets a very slippery slope, a precedent going forward for another interest to come in and point to this. Well, you you know, preempted in this, now we wanna be preempted out. Um, so again, for those of you who are not dealing with the aggregates, uh, with the mining operation in your community, this could set precedent for things you are dealing with in your community. Um, there's, you know, the ability for local governments to be able to have um, a say in what a very serious consequence is. Um, and again, talking about the context, your community is very different from 
from another community. So one of these operations that's out in the middle of nowhere has a totally different effect than it has on a community um, where residential property is adjacent to or surrounding one of these sites or a potential site. Um, and so it's Senate Bill 431. Um, there's some blogs on it. Um, if you want to go back and look at the Inside 208 that talks about, has some of these talking points in it as well, um, and, and what, or contact me directly. Um, but also working with any of your local uh, environmental groups, um, looking at anybody who's out there when it comes to hunting, fishing, um, nature conservancy, um, because if local government doesn't have a say, all of these different things could be impacted um, if one of these sites is not put in, in a thoughtful um, particular manner and just making sure that we're checking the boxes when it comes to environmental issues, um, because we're talking about mining and drilling, um, we're talking about underground and water systems and all kinds of things that are way above my uh, level of, of knowledge, um, but very important. And we can point you to some other resources for, or um, again, connecting with those other groups in your community who would be uh, worried about this issue. Okay. And the other big topic I know you're working on is the short-term rentals. Um, what's the latest on that? Yeah, so we've had a couple of bills introduced um, recently over in the Senate, um, Senate Bill 1144 and 1145. Um, and what those two bills are is setting up, um, one bill is setting up kind of a short-term rental registry um, that requires uh, someone to register, uh, make sure they have adequate liability insurance, and does a couple of things. But then it also is connected to a zoning preemption bill. Um, and the zoning preemption bill is not anything that we can be on board with. It's the same stuff that we have been um, fighting against for the last three plus years. Um, and, so and that is basically prohibiting communities. Go ahead. Right. To regulating this. It's saying you can't treat a short term rent, somebody who's doing short term rentals, that dwelling any differently than any other dwelling um, in that district, uh, that zoning district, which we all know residential dwellings are different if it's an owner occupied versus a rental um, and how those are treated um, just normally. So uh, those are our two bills that we're watching, but we also have Senate Bill 1196 that has been introduced. Um, and this bill is again setting up the short-term rental uh, registry um, and it is uh, requiring an assessment that would help go to fund Pure Michigan. Um, but it also has a very small percentage of that assessment that would go to the host community to help pay for things that we all know are costs associated with visitors um, in your communities. Um, so we're, we think that bill has some potential. It references zoning, um, but all it says is that you can't outright prohibit short-term rentals in your community, um, which you know, the, the league has been on the page that um, outright banning short-term rentals um, that we don't think that should be happening as a negotiation point, but we municipalities should be able to regulate right. short-term rentals in their community. And once again, just like most zoning things, this goes back to the context of your community, which is a lot of times very different than other communities. And so making right. sure that your legislators understand what's going on in their district and your municipality is different what's going on in other places. And you need to be able to make those decisions thoughtfully at a local level. Right. We talked many, many times of how, you know, you can't pass cookie cutter legislation that, that does a one swipe covers everybody because that doesn't work because all of our communities are different. So we're always been an advocate of local control and having communities get the ability to make the decisions that's best for their residents. 
Yep, these three bills are going to um, get a hearing. They've all three been referred to the Senate Economic and Small Business Development Committee. Um, and in working with the chair of that committee, Senator Horn, he is going to give all of the bills um, a hearing um, when they get back in. Um, and uh, at this point, we don't know anything more than that. Um, Senator Horn is very open to hearing feedback on the bills. Um, it, internally, we're running these bills through our um, formal review process um, to come up with our formal position on them. Um, but, you know, there's a small uh, short-term rental work group that I was working with in the past. Uh, I'll be re-engaging those folks as well with these bills um, and, and we'll be, but we, we assume this will be a push um, by the realtors to get this done in lame duck, so. Okay. Well, I think speaking of kind of long-term issues, we had a couple of reports that came out. One, in fact, one's coming out tomorrow. One came out last week. And I wanted to ask Chris or John or, or even Jen about these real quick. And one was by the Michigan League of Public Policy, which, which basically said that our system for funding municipalities is broken. And then the one coming out tomorrow from the Lincoln Institute, from what we've seen, also says that the 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 Michigan system for funding municipalities is broken. And that's something that the league and our Save My City initiatives have said for a long time. Chris, what do you think of the fact that these two reports came out with lame duck coming up? Um, you know, it's kind of nice to get a third party validation for, for what we've been saying all along. Yeah, Matt, it's, you know, it's one thing to keep banging our head against the wall, uh, you know, over and over again, but it's, it's, nice when someone's actually listening when we when we bang our head on the wall and I again I think it's it is only helpful when we see stories like this and reports like this come out you know completely independent from you know other other sources talking about how restrictive Michigan is compared to other states uh, you know how Michigan has not bounced back following the Great Recession and you know as we've been talking about here and talking about with legislators now some of the the real unease as we move into this next year uh, with the impacts from the pandemic and what that'll mean for communities. You know, I'm talking with our, our 24 income tax communities, uh, city income tax communities, and the immediate impact they're going to see this next year. Uh, and then we, you know, as we look at the December 31st tax date coming up here, what does that mean for commercial properties and, and businesses that have already closed permanently or that have been closed for long periods of time? You know, what kind of uh, property appeals are we going to start seeing as we move into March? And I think that's a real concern for our members. And we're working with the, the legislature and the governor's office to try and get ahead of that right now. And these reports uh, will only help us with that. Right. And uh, we are participating uh, tomorrow. The Lincoln Institute of Public Policy, which is based out of Massachusetts, came out with this uh, study that was funded by the CS Mott Foundation here in Flint, my, my hometown, Flint. Um, and because they know we're so uh, passionate and knowledgeable on this issue, they actually um, uh, invited us to be involved in the press conference tomorrow. So uh, uh, our league president, uh, Mayor uh, William Wilde, Mayor Westland, is, is going to be one of the people speaking at this news conference where they're rolling out this new report from the Lincoln Institute. And this is really an in-depth study 
Um, the league was not involved with it at all, other than they invited us to uh, help them roll it out at this press conference tomorrow. So I did put my contact information. Uh, if you would uh, like to listen in on the press conference when it happens tomorrow, uh, feel free to send me an email. I can give you the Zoom information. It is targeted for media, but uh, our members are welcome to come listen to firsthand what that report has to say, because it, it's pretty interesting stuff. Um, they looked at uh, communities and, and states all over the nation, really to, to determine how their municipal finance system differs from ours. And they really identify some potential solutions on, on fixing our, our problem. Chris, you, you got to see the report. What did you think about it? Well, I think the part that struck me was again, how uh, you know, we've done our own reports on this. We've obviously been talking about it for years with the legislature. So it's good to see you know, outside sources coming to the same conclusions. That, and really, it tracked so closely with everything we've been saying. Um, I think the part that was uh, I was pleasantly surprised with was how in-depth they went into looking at other states and comparing Michigan's system with other states and how other states do things. I think there's, you know, always looking for good models, good ways to approach uh, change. And I think it's always easier to swallow if someone else is, is doing this or has been successful at it. So, you know, our hope is that uh, the legislature will really, you know, Take a look at this report. I know the uh, the Lincoln folks are are working on having some legislative hearings where they can talk about this directly with the legislators. Uh, so you know this is something that we could see hear a lot more about as we move through the next ten weeks. All right. Well, good. Well, uh, thank you, Chris, uh, John, and Jen. Do you guys have anything else? Any questions that came through, Betsy, that I didn't see before we uh, sign off here? There's just one question. I'm not sure uh, who wants to take this one, but. Uh, the question was, if there's a delay in the Secretary of State certifying the state election results, are locals okay to go ahead and swear in newly elected members and hold meetings prior to certification? Jen, you're on mute. You're all on mute. <laughs> I think that's a legal question that the three of us are not. Uh... <laughs> yeah, so our answer on that is consult your local municipal attorney on, on how to uh, answer that. There was, oh, um, yeah, that was the same question that Betsy just asked about the Secretary of State. So, well, um, certainly the process, Matt, is there is a there is a local certification, a local board of canvassers, and then your county. So there's a whole process you'll be going through uh, as as you do your count locally. Uh, so make sure you're you know following that process closely, working with Secretary of State, uh, working with your municipal attorney, uh, and again, I I still. You know, believe we've got a great a great system here, a great process in Michigan. Uh, we've, we've always been very good, very thorough. Our counts have always been very close. Uh, we do not have issues you see in other states, uh, and you know I think you know this year will prove again just how good how good our system really is. Yeah, uh, um, absolutely. Uh, speaking of the election, uh, of course, the election is next week. Um, our next Monday morning live will be the Monday after the election, Monday, November 9th. Do you think we'll have uh, election results by November 9th to just talk about? <laughs> so what are we hearing as far as how quickly with all the absentees, you think our communities are going to be able to turn these around pretty quickly? Yeah, I mean, Matt, I think, it, again, it just goes back to you have communities that have established absentee counting boards, uh, you know, special absentee precincts. You know, they'll be able to process all day long in those in those counting boards. Uh, there were some changes that were just made in statute, Jen. Am I correct in some of the processing? Yeah, I think with the prepping of the absentee um, and and what can be done there. 
Okay, so I think you know to the extent uh, to the extent possible, there have been you know some modifications made. I know the Secretary of State's office has been in constant contact with local clerks, so you know I feel feel good that uh, you know, this work will be able to get done in a very timely, very efficient way. And just to clarify, oh, I know ahead. I said processing. I believe it was it was a change in prepping, not oh, prepping. just <laughs> to make sure I'm using the right terminology. Prepping. It was in prepping the absentee ballots to be processed. Yeah. I thought it was interesting, some states, at least media reporting, how some states actually report what number of Democrats have voted versus Republicans have voted. I guess some states have that set up, but we don't really have that. For us, it's just kind of all, you don't know how people voted until after the results come out. I thought that was interesting. Some states did that. Yeah. Hey, Matt, you know, the one thing I would say about the election is actually not about the election. It's, it's about... <laughs> Right. Good transition, about, John. <laughs> right. It's about what, what what it really represents for us um, as our lobbying team, right? Which is what we've been talking about here today, which is the start of lame duck. And you know, Jen's talked a lot about some issues that are going to be happening right away that have been critical issues for us. And we know there's going to be a few other things. I mean, we also understand this has been a year unlike any other. It's been challenging. It's probably been long for many people. I, I know we're we're sitting at home right now, and it's it's just different. Right. Um, but our goals and our objectives and the things that we have to do over the next two months uh, remain the same as they have been in every other lame duck. And so I think the biggest key for us is going to going to be not only that we stay diligent as staff, but our members continue to engage and help and, and weigh in on issues where it's most important. Right. Because the election is going to be one thing uh, and all the rhetoric that's going to be on uh, around that. But there's no question. Um, uh, I will not be answering Pete's question right now that he just put in the. In the I don't chat think everyone box. could see that, but Pete but, has asked a snarky question. <laughs> but I, uh, I, I do know that that as always in lame duck, we're going to need our members' help uh, to make sure that we can get things done. We need to get done and, and stop the things that we need to stop, and that won't change. So, as always, we thank you for your involvement, and your energy, and your effort during this time. And you know, about sixty some odd more days to go, and we can get to twenty twenty one. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you guys, Chris, Jen, and John, and a special thank you to Kelly, who was her first timer on Monday Morning Live. She did awesome. Thank you, Kelly, for coming on and talking about the census. Thank you for all of our members. Great questions again this week. Uh, we'll be back on November 9th, unless we have to have another special Monday Morning Live, which hopefully we won't have to if nothing crazy happens, but you never know. So uh, thank you guys for joining us. Again, I'm Matt Bach with the Michigan Municipal League. Uh, until next time, I uh, hope everyone stays healthy. And thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ray. Thank you. This has been a production of the Michigan Municipal League. For more information on our programs and services, please visit www.mml.org and join us for the next episode of We Love Where You Live.